Welcome to Pocketry Presents, the podcast for emerging and aspiring poets. I'm Indrani Pereira, the founder of Pocketry, the home of unheard voices. I'm coming to you from the lands and waterways of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. I acknowledge that this is stolen land and that sovereignty has never been ceded. In this episode of Pocketry Presents, I'm interviewing an established poet about their creative process. Joining me today from Wurundjeri country is Dominique Heck. A Belgian-born poet, fiction writer and scholar, Dominique Heck lives in Melbourne. She writes across genres and sometimes across tongues. Her works include a novel, three collections of short stories and 11 books of poetry. Kaosmos, Tracks and Songlines are her latest poetry offerings. With Eugen Bacon, she also co-authored Speculate, a collection of microlit. Smacked and Other Stories of Addiction, a runner-up in the 2021 Carmel Bird Digital Award, is fresh off the press. Welcome, Dominique. I'm so glad you could join me today. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to be able to speak to you today and hear all about your creative process. Thank you. My first question is, where do you write? Do you write at home? Are you outside, in a park, public transport? Well, there are two answers. I I write everywhere. Everywhere I go, so I take notes. But to actually write a poem, I need to be at home where I tend to follow silence and sunshine. Not always at the computer. Sometimes I'll move around the house uh, and sometimes I'll, um, I'll sit down and write in longhand with a pencil, not a pen. Uh, so you prefer the feeling of a pencil on the page to a pen? Well, poetry, yes, which is, which is interesting. It's not the same when I write prose, yes. So... Um, my poems are born with, with a, a pencil on, on a fresh page. So clean piece of paper and a pencil. Clean piece of paper or um, <laughs> anything at hand, yes. Have you thought about why it is that prose is with a pen and poetry is with a pencil when you write? Prose is like running or running a marathon and uh, poetry writing is more, more like ambling, I think. And I think that poetry is probably closer to your mother tongue or whatever you consider as your mother tongue. It's, the, it's got to do with the materiality of language. Prose is already processed, I think. So that's probably why there is a difference um, in the way you approach writing there. Yeah. That's quite interesting that you've noticed that difference between the two different forms that you're writing. I'm wondering if when you're doing your poetry writing, if you are writing at a particular time of day. When I was working full time, I used to write through the night. So when everybody was stuck safely in bed and there was silence and just darkness and uh, I'd listen to whatever birds were still chirping or whatever, but I needed that element of um, stillness, quietness. And that's when I would write. And as the children grew, um, I'd shift my, my rhythms and I'd, I'd get up at three o'clock in the morning, but still, you know, everybody was safe. And that's when I would write. These days, I uh, resigned from a university job. And so I had the luxury of uh, having the whole day in front of me. So I start writing at about six o'clock in the morning. It's free writing, but sometimes a, um, 
a prose poem or a poem is incipient in in what I jot down. So yes, and I write basically all day, not always on the same project, but as you know, as a writer, you you have other tasks like you know reviewing people's poetry and so forth. But yes, I consider my day as a, a day at the office. Doesn't mean that it stops at six, but um, that's the way I envisage my my kind of um, discipline. Yeah. And how do you find having a whole day in which to write now and making that your job, as it were, is affecting your creativity? Have you noticed a difference between how or what you're writing from now, as in before when you were, say, writing through the night or getting up early? There is less pressure when you have, you know, a house full of children and all all the tasks you have to do. Um, yes, there is pressure. So, um, yeah, I would write in bursts. Now I indulge in, in the flow of writing and sometimes I have to stop the flow. So, for instance, around 11 o'clock in the morning, I start fidgeting. That's when I go out for a walk or if the pools are open, that's when I go for a swim. So, um, yes, and sometimes in the afternoon I will I will do some administrative work or review other people's books and then get back into the poem, depending on um, how strenuous it is. If I'm working on a sequence, I'm like a Jack Russell. I will not let go of my bones. So, um, yeah, I'll stop at six to cook dinner, but I'll go back to it in the evening. So it's like that sequence is taking hold of you and it's, it's pushing you to keep finishing it. Yes, it is. So, yes, having more time available actually pushed me into writing longer sequences of poems. And they tend to be sequences of um, 16 poems. I don't know why. And when you say a sequence, do you mean that it's on a particular topic or it's thematically linked? It is, yes. So I have the, the title or a theme. And, um, yes, I will work and in one voice or in different voices or use different points of views, whatever. But yes, it is it is linked. So the last two pieces I wrote are two long sequences and um, they're unpublished. And I think to to have it published in a chapbook, I need another another sequence and uh, it might be another triptych. So it's funny, I, I write, you know, in Triptychs, mainly, yeah, sequences of poems, different numbers. I don't know why that that came about. It sounds like you already have a routine with your writing. So when you get up in the morning, there's the free writing and then it's the quite creative part. You break and you're outside, do admin, and then you come back to the creativity later. Do you find that having that break helps you to come back to the poem later? Oh, yes. You need some distance from poems and you also need to let them rest. Um, So sometimes you get stuck and it's important to do something else. And if it's at night, you go to sleep and your poem goes to sleep as well. Yes, I've learned along the years that there's it doesn't help trying to force a poem into a form. It's one of the mistakes I did, you know, early on. so how, how do you know what form then the poem needs to be in? I was going to say you have to trust your poem. 
there are poems that need to, to sit still and there are poems that need to run or dance. And sometimes I will start something, there will be a gush of words and uh, I realize that it's actually not a prose poem that, you know, on revising, you need a line break. You, you need this, to, you know, to alert the reader to, you know, the importance of one word. Uh, or one gap. So, um, yeah, you have to trust, to trust your poem. It's rhythm in particular. Rhythm is actually what drives my, my practice more than images. With your rhythm, are you hearing it in your head as you're writing the poem? Sometimes I do, but sometimes I also feel it in my body. So that's why I say that sometimes I move around and I don't know what is, you know, um, bothering me. It's, it may be a sound, like um, I can refer to a poem titled Thirst that I wrote in 2008. And uh, it was actually prompted by the sound of a dying cicada at the end of summer. So I had this, this insect, you know, whirling in my, in my head and I was moved by, by it for some reason. And the poem started with that. And yes, so I started moving around the house and people thought I was crazy. You know, that is where it comes from. It's not an image at all. You know, I used to think, you know, poetry comes from an image, but um, it's, it is not, not at all true in my case. Mm. So you used sound in that case. Was it the trigger for your poetry? It was the rhythm of the, the green grocer cricket dying. Yes, this repetitive and some, somehow um, melancholy um, sound. And so I responded to it in the context of the drought. You know, it was a very dry year and I had to address that theme. So would you say that your poetry, as well as in being inspired by rhythms, it's also inspired by events that are happening in the wider world? Yes. And things that touch me, that move me, that anger me, you know. So things that happen to me, things that happen to the family are, and, um, yeah, politics, you know, at the moment, yeah. Quite a few poems about COVID and, uh, um, yeah, things like that. I'm curious to know about when you actually are writing, so does it come out as dot points or fragments, full sentences? Is there a way it comes? Not dot points, <laughs> not that systematic. No, it's usually sentences align, and then and then they comes they will come a fragment will, would emerge and develop. And in the moment of revision, of course, that's when I make decisions about you know where it's going, not really where I want it to go anymore. I used to do that, but I don't anymore. I, as I say, I, I trust the poem. Do you have any suggestions for ways in which you can tune your listening so you can hear a poem better when it's speaking to you? Yes, it's a trick that the novelist Gerald Monane taught me like 30 years ago. Read it out loud and then you will know when you have to break the line. You know, when you stop breathing, keep on going. So that's why I no longer write formal poems that rhyme, for instance, but prefer free, freer forms. 
So you, you are still using forms, not moving completely to free verse? Some poems come formally arranged and some are just um, free verse and some are just prose poems. Yes, but I don't want them to rhyme anymore. I, I like internal rhymes. I also notice that I use a lot of alliterations and um, and I like that because um, it has to do with the pleasure of speaking the poem, not just seeing it on the page. When you're writing your poem, are you writing it all in one go or little bits at a time? It depends. I refer to a poem I wrote in one go without actually changing one thing. It's a poem called The Gaze of Silence um, that I wrote in um, 1998. And it kind of trickled and I was amazed by that process, but I, I, I did not revise it. And it, it still stands out. It's in the collection called Out of Bounds. It's the first sequence in there. Otherwise, when I write a poem, it will have a shape that I'm not aware of, and I will write it from beginning to end. And sometimes it will have gaps or there will be stars going in all directions in the page, but they are connected. So I'm making connections and that's not a finished poem. So it's the first draft will look like, like a mess. Um, so I don't think anybody could read it apart from me, just going back over it. So it sounds like when you're doing that messy first draft, bits and pieces are coming, but they might be in all sorts of orders or you might, you know, go off on a tangent. Yes, and making connections and the connections are about focusing the poem, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, it does. And when you're using forms, are there a set group of forms that you're using or do you, I don't know, read a poem by somebody and go, oh, I wonder what this form is? Well, sometimes I'm, of course, inspired by other writers and sometimes I find references, as I did recently, by an author who, who wrote a poem sort of one way forward and then had had the same poem but backwards and I thought I did not know I ought to reference this because I've done it before so you know you think you've got great ideas sometimes but somebody has have thought about it before I get bored easily so yeah I like to experiment with form and explode actually more than contract rhymes, I suppose, or verse. Mm. And do you like then creating your own forms? Yes, yes, I do. And I've learned from editors who actually uh, picked up on my sort of visual experimentations or whatever, and they said, you've got to be more daring. So I, I have done so in, in that little uh, chapbook called Chaosmos, for instance. Yes, it, it, was, it was a brilliant editor. What's it like working with an editor? Well, editors have got their own personalities and um, their preferences and so forth. You have to get on with them to trust them. The first editor was very conservative, so I picked a couple of fights with her because she, she, she didn't like expletives 
And um, yeah, she was very conservative about punctuation. And I said, haven't you read Malarmé? <laughs> anyway, so that's, that's a little aside. But I've learned something from all of, of the editors I've worked with. And some of them are really offhand, which is good too. But one of them, the editor who um, is responsible for the first publication of After Cage, learned the history of the, the manuscript and it, it was born uh, out of a dancing workshop and she said she wanted me to go back to the dancing uh, she wanted me to dance the poem and so it reinforced uh, the rhythms in that in killer poem the editor who uh, helped me with Chaosmos or who read Chaosmos emphasized the visual aspect. So, yeah, I learned from both of them in that respect, and I'm grateful. It sounds like a fascinating combination that you have. On one hand, there's the visuals of the poem and the words on the page, and that's what the editor with Chaosmos helped you with. And then on the other hand, you've got the movement and the dancing that you had in After Cage. And I'm curious to know, are you a dancer? Is that why movement is so important to your work? No, in another life, I was a gymnast, not a dancer. But I do love um, dancing. There's this dance house in, in Melbourne and that I frequent from time to time. Yes, I'm interested, you know, crossing the borders of art so in music and dance and so that is quite alive in my poetry and movement is important but I think crossing these borders enriches a writer's life what is movement but not life actually yes when you're talking about crossing borders are you meaning using elements from other traditions or approaches to inform your writing is that what you mean by crossing borders I mean the uh, crossing borders between the arts. So um, music will inspire me. Um, art will inspire me. I've got, you know, ekphrastic poems. I've got poems in, inspired by music eh, and, uh, and also by, uh, by dance, just either witnessing, you know, a beautiful performance or actually experiencing it myself. Yes. So that's what I mean by crossing borders. But as you suggested in, um, in, in the bio, I also like crossing uh, borders of language. So sometimes some of my poems are salads of languages. You know, there's a bit of, you know, Spanish and uh, a bit of Italian and German or, or Dutch and French, whatever, whatever language, you know, I've got under my skin. And what drives these mad poems is the, the sheer oral pleasure of listening to the language. So that it's a free association, but it's, it's oral rather than imagistic. Is it also the pleasure that you get from speaking those words from your vast repertoire of languages that you know? Oh, yes, certainly. Yes, yes. And when you're using other languages in your poems, I, I'm assuming that your poems are primarily written in English, is that right? Yes, I first started publishing in English. So, and um, for, let's say, the last 30 years, I mainly wrote in English and sometimes translating myself back into French. And recently, uh, I've done, the, done it the other way around. So I'm writing in French and then in English 
for some reasons. And also I've written some multi-language pieces, which are, I suppose, prose poetry rather than poetry, but they incorporate poems in different languages. And when you have those languages, do you translate them within the piece or provide a glossary or do you just let them sit there on the page in their own splendour? There are two ways I I proceed, actually. One is to actually provide an indication of what's being said, so I don't provide the translation. The other way, which I think is a little bit clumsier, is actually to provide the, the, the translation immediately. And recently, I just, you know, put together a a collection of prose poems and I thought, gee, (laughs) this is a bit mad. (laughs) I know that the reader will will be able to find, you know, the Spanish or the French or the Italian, whatever, on Google Translate, which is getting better and better. But I thought also as a courtesy, I should have notes. So I did notes at the end of of the chat book. So there are different ways of going about that. And I was wanting to know about your mother tongue and if writing in your mother tongue is different to writing in English. Yes, it is. You know, your mother tongue, you are close to your mother and things happened in my life. And, uh, yeah, at one point, I mean, I stopped speaking French. and I lost a child, so I thought, yeah, I just, I had no choice and just as well I had a spare language to write in. But um, yeah, I uh, remember talking to um, the late Judith Rodriguez, you know, who was probably my mentor and I didn't know it at the time. I said to her, it is funny, I can't get angry in French, but I can in English. She said, well, that's interesting. So, um, yes, but also like, you know, um, English being, you know, a Germanic language, you can use words like Lego blocks or whatever, dismantle them more readily than than you would in French, which is actually uh, constrained by syntax a lot more than English. Yes, so it, it is very different. And I know that when I translate myself into one language or another, the tone is sometimes very different, but it's, it has to do with the, with the identity of the language. And being, you know, a translator faithful, not to the, uh, to the author, because it would be being faithful to myself, but, uh, but to the, the idea of the language, um, yeah, I don't, I don't bother with it. It doesn't bother me that the texture and the tonalities are slightly different. Do you think it's still the same poem then when it's translated if the texture and tonalities have changed? No, I don't think there's, especially in literary translation, there is no no equivalent. Yeah, it depends on your your philosophy of translation, but but it has something to do with with the sensibility of a culture, and it's embedded in the language. Can you keep the sensibility of the poem when you're changing the language and got a new language and its sensibility? 
amusing sensibility, which is a, a surface. You keep the core of the poem, you keep its emotional core, but the sensibility will be dispersed, if you see what I mean, or if you hear what I mean. So, yeah, you will not hear my um, being angry in French even these days, but it will um, strike you as being more violent in English. As a result of that, do you reach for different languages depending on what you're wanting to communicate? I suppose so. I mean, it was a surprise to me to start writing a long sequence uh, of poems called Piste de Rêve, which translates as song lines in, in English. It was uh, prompted by um, a trip we made to the Northern Territory, I've been wanting to see Indigenous paintings for like 30 years and suddenly it happened. And I don't know why it came out in French, but I suspect it was because I was with family who'd come over from, from Belgium and I was constantly talking to um, teenagers and trying to explain or struggling to explain, you know, what the dream time is and so forth, and finding that, my God, I was appropriating as I was walking. And I think I wrote it in French as a kind of tribute to these, you know, young girls who were asking me questions all the time. And, and also it, it was a tribute to it was a way of distancing myself from the whole political situation in Australia, yes, and feeling a stranger and wanting to understand. Anyway, it's, it's complicated. And it's, 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 it's the only piece I've written in French first. Uh, sometimes I write in French when you know, I want to actually hide uh, from, you know, hide my feelings either from myself or from other people, but I've done that. That's interesting, the way that you use languages differently depending on what you're wanting to reveal or conceal, as it were. Mm, it, is a, it is a balancing act, yeah. You know, I've got you know, four grown sons and, uh, yeah, some of the things I've written, um, I wish I had not written, but, uh, yes, anyway... But, but there is a, the need to actually communicate in, in, in both languages. So I will translate myself back into English or into French, whatever. And uh, it's interesting what it reviews. I don't like to actually uh, dwell too much on the reasons why I'm doing that. Uh, but safety, uh, yeah, emotional safety or, or protecting people sometimes is a factor. I like that you have that sort of duty of care built into your writing and that you're thinking about that in terms of what you are um, putting on the page. Yes, I think that I'm more aware of that now than I was when I first started writing. And, yeah, the first poem I wrote was was um, purely cathartic and I, I never thought I'd publish it and until that happened uh, I thought I was just a fiction writer um, so it was was funny that yeah that poem came out of that that moment of grief actually yeah it's called grief 
and I read it in public at a, at a SIDS conference and some of the people or, you know, SIDS mothers came to me and she and said they were surprised by the violence in it. I was not aware of that. So probably writing it in English was a kind of um, offence. You can to contain the poem and to keep yourself safe. Yes, and get it out. <laughs> Poetry has that ability to be cathartic and also to connect with other people. I think it can do it very beautifully when it's done well. Well, I think that's why you write. I mean, I write because I I write as I, I can't imagine living without writing. It's part of me. But also, it's not this narcissistic you know, need. It's also the joy of connecting with other people. You know, it's this imaginary community of other writers. Yes, that I love, actually, that sustain, you know, my life and, you know, whatever you can call it. Creativity is a bad word, but imagination is another one better. I'm wondering if your creativity ever gets stuck or if you have writer's block or even believe in writer's block. Well, had you asked me, you know, in 2002, I would have said, no, I never have writer's block. I seem to cycle from writing fiction to analytical essays and then poetry and depending on, you know, where I am emotionally or whatever, I, I do that instinctively. But in 2002, I had a big a dry patch. I call it a dry patch because words would not even trickle. And the reason I, I know now is because I, I stopped, you know, an, an analysis that is, you know, I, was into psychoanalysis and so forth. So I stopped the analysis and it's as though I was grieving actually or mourning this end of analysis and I started painting. First it was black and white and then I splashed colours like children do. And then um, poems started to to come back and uh, and they were related to the painting. So that was interesting. This said, there are times when I have dry patches now too, but they, they, they are not like, you know, six months. They don't last for six, six months or whatever. It's after I finish a project and I'm kind of exhausted by it. And I, I, so I have to, to process what's been written and how it will be um, received because that's another, you know, another can be another traumatic event so what I do I read you know I never read um, I never stop reading about other people but uh, but that's when I will I will I will read I will have a you know I will read a novel or give myself some free time to actually enjoy uh, reading and not push myself to write too much I still you know write things that I, I check out. But, uh, and, um, and when I'm stuck, that is when I, the desire to write comes back, I will 
start free writing and um, use the lesson I learned from an English poet named Oz Hardwick. Check him out. He's a wonderful poet and um, scholar, whatever. But uh, I once took a workshop with him. So we were told to start free writing and uh, then incorporate three completely unrelated words. So one was weasel, another, another was gravel and another one was hollow and I I thought that was brilliant so when I'm stuck that's what I do and sometimes it produces um, strangely surreal poems you know a clash of images and you you think oh wow so when you're doing that Oz Hardwick exercise you free write Do you then just randomly pick three words from the dictionary that have nothing to do with the poem and then put them in? You can do it from the dictionary or if there is noise in the background, like if my husband is listening to some crap, whatever, American broadcast or whatever, I will just snatch one word or the other. um, If, you know, somebody comes in and says something or other, I'll just jot down, you know, with words or I don't know if I'm looking at the window I will you know pick something that I see. I like that exercise because it's a way of getting you to be creative and sort of free up your imagination. Well it refreshes you know it refreshes your writing there's nothing worse than you know, noticing that you are repeating yourself. So that's that's another good 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 trick too. Because yeah, when I see oh, I've written that before. I I have to go away from this. Yes. So that's what I do. I'd like to end by asking you if you have any tips for writing or revising poetry for our listeners. Tips on writing. Well, yes, this. Oz Hardwick exercise is, is, a, is a gem. Revising. Read your poetry out loud and trust your breathing when you are actually reading it. Discard adjectives and adverbs, although um, sometimes a little adverb will actually, you know, fine-tune a poem, pro- provide a connection when there is a gap as will a comma, for instance. So be, be alert to, to all of these details. Strong verbs are much better than any adverbs. And I think that's probably it. If you have a friend you trust, um, maybe pass it on to them if the poem means something to you. Uh, I used not to do that for a long time, but it, it pays off. And it also um, strengthens friendship or connections between between writers. Um, because sometimes you are blind to your own mistakes or to your own habits. So people will pull you up. It's important to trust them, of course. Yeah, writing need not be totally, you know, solitary pursuit. 
Thank you so much for joining me today, Dominique, and sharing your creative process. It has been a joy to hear your insights and thank you for those great tips for emerging writers. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> You're so welcome. And I'd also like to say thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Dominique has published 11 volumes of poetry as well as a novel and three books of stories. Her most recent poetry collection is Tracks, published by Recent Work Press. You can order your copy from the Recent Work Press website. To find out more about Pocketry, the home of unheard voices, visit www.pocketry.com.au and happy writing.